Listen to that last uh, phrase again that we sang. We, say, we sang, revive us, Lord. Is zeal abating while harvest fields are vast and white? Revive us, Lord. The world is waiting. Equip your church to spread the light. Um, the, the very thing that we see, the struggle in the American church, indeed how many people, uh, I'm sorry, it's okay. I don't care if you like football or you like to play it. It's fun enough after a Thanksgiving meal to go out there and toss up a football. What I find discouraging is that the body of Christ has decided that in, in large number, people will skip church and they'll plan this day like it's some special, like it should be on the church calendar or something. And it just astounds me um, that the church would would see these things, but it's it's par for the course, you know, our comforts and, and all of these things and the things that have caused the, the witness of the church to suffer in our culture. And if you have to look at the, the problems in our culture, I think you, you have to, this little kid taught me this, he goes, my mother said that when you're pointing one finger at someone else, there's three fingers pointing back at you. And if we're to point a finger at the culture around us, I think in large measure it's because the church has let go of the standards of, of, of the Lord, and we have abandoned our calling. That's, that's why I find this chapter 14 of Acts uh, and Acts 13 have been such an encouragement to me because you see how tenaciously uh, these men uh, hung to the word of God and stuck to their mission, which is the very thing we need to hear in the Lord's church today. Would you listen again? Let me read from uh, verse 19 of Acts chapter 14, um, and I will read through verse 28. We will only be looking at verse 23 tonight. Again, this is the Lord's word. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. But while the disciples stood around him, he got up and entered the city. The next day he went away with Barnabas to Derbe, after they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, uh, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. When they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. They passed through Pisidia and came into Pamphylia, when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. From there they sailed to Antioch, from which they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had accomplished. When they arrived and gathered the church together, they began to report all things that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they spent a long time with the disciples. This is the Lord's word. Would you bow with me, friends, and let's seek the Lord's blessing. Again, our Father in heaven, we do thank you for uh, your word, for this snapshot of, uh, of your dealing, of your works in, in the church, in the world, in time gone by. And by these things, Lord, we draw great encouragement and instruction for ourselves in our own day. And how often we have been dissuaded from following you and from adhering to these things which are more important and exchanging them for that which is uh, temporal and fleeting. Father, forgive us. Uh, forgive your church for loving games more than we love our Savior. 
Forgive us, Lord, for loving our money. Forgive us, Lord, for loving comforts and all of these things more than Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, we do, as we have sung just moments ago, we pray that you would revive your work in your church throughout this land, that you would revive our hearts, and that the things of this world would taste foul to us in our mouths, and that we would not be satisfied until we are satisfied in you. Would you now come and bless your word going forward and come and be present with us by your spirit, helping this servant and helping these your people, uh, blessing us, Father, as we would listen now to you. Help us, we pray, in our weakness. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, recall, we are again um, in verse 23. And here, to just bring us back up, it's been a couple of weeks. The apostles, Paul and Barnabas, have been busy on their first missionary journey. They have been preaching the gospel and making disciples faithfully. They have done this in each of the cities to which they have traveled, Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and then finally in Derbe. In the first towns they went to, the result was always the same. It was always persecution. The Jews were stirring up the Gentiles, winning over the crowds, behaving as a leavenous influence upon the people. Persecution and mistreatment followed them wherever they went. And friends, such is the response we may, and we've applied this earlier, such is the response we may and should expect from the world uh, when we set about to do the Lord's work of making disciples for Jesus Christ. Anytime we step into the world, anytime we open our mouths and say, thus saith the Lord, no, this is not right, no, this is not good, this is not what the Lord wants. And by the way, when we're calling out the world, it, it, it is, so often we think, we think that if to call out the world, well, then you're, you're just necessarily a mean person. Look, you speak the truth in love. You speak it out of a heart of concern for people. That's why we do this. We're not looking to make them like us. We're looking to lead them to Jesus Christ. But of necessity, when you call somebody out and you say this is not what the Lord wants, this is what the Lord calls us to, this is going to be offensive. This is going to be offensive to the world. It's what we expect. We expect persecution. We should expect persecution from the world. Uh, this is the work, however, the Lord has called us to do. In the most part, Paul and Barnabas, while suffering, uh, they were able to avoid being stoned until they reached Lystra, which I think is just such a fascinating city uh, for a number of reasons. Remember, Lystra was a strange place for those who claimed that Barnabas and Paul were gods. As Paul had healed the man who had been lame from his mother's womb, the people and the priest of Zeus wanted to offer sacrifices to them, However, we are told that it was with difficulty that Paul and Barnabas restrained the crowds from offering sacrifices to them. Uh, what a change had come over them because this city of Lystra that wanted to worship Paul and Barnabas as Zeus and Hermes, um, they now turned. Jews from Antioch and Iconium had come to Lystra. And remember, they traveled, the Jews, some of these people traveled over 100 miles to come just in order to persecute Paul and Barnabas in Lystra. <clears throat> and we're, we're told by Luke, and having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. He looked lifeless. They dragged him out of the city, and the disciples who had been made while in Lystra gathered around him. And what do you imagine went through their minds? Again, I think this is a, a, a fantastic 
uh, observation, a fantastic point. What do you think went through the minds of these Christians as they stood looking at Paul's lifeless body on the ground? This is terrible. What do we do? Is this what uh, is this what Paul was talking about? That we're called to this? You can imagine the doubts and the fears that confronted them, can't you? I certainly can. And it's astounding, at least to me, uh, astounding to me is this fact, as Luke records it, that Paul got up and entered back into the city out of which they had just drug his body. That was a small little point in this in the scriptures. But again, just the, 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 a person, just a normal, rational person would say, why would you go back into that town? They just tried to kill you. I'm imagining Paul waking up and, and looking at the feet <laughs> of the disciples around him, and he thinks, huh, I better teach them a lesson. And what's the lesson they learn? You don't give up. You don't quit. No, this is, this is what we're to expect. I'm going to go back into the city. And he gets up and he goes right back, marches right back into the city. I would have thought he would have just gone away. Most men would have, uh, I venture a guess, most men would have just gone away. But Paul does not. And the message being that in the face of hardship, my friends, we mustn't quit. The Lord will sustain us or he will bring us home. He sustained Paul in this trial or with Stephen. He decided Stephen, remember Stephen was stoned. Um, and he was killed, and he entered into the rest of the Lord. Um, but as Paul would say in Philippians, to live is Christ and to die is gain. So in the face of, and it, it struck me interesting that this morning as we're looking at the breastplate of righteousness, and that breastplate was the front and the back. So if you didn't have it, you would either run or you would uh, flee, you would, you would try to get away, but you would always be in danger. But the breastplate of righteousness enables a person to have his back covered and his front in order to engage in battle. What does the Christian do in the face of hardship? He doesn't run away, but he engages the battle. The worst thing in the face of persecution is to remain silent and is to be still. Do you realize how the Chinese church has grown since communism has taken over? The same in, I, I think it's Iran, how many Christians have, um, I forget it's in the millions now they estimate, but in, what was it, 1979, they expelled all Christian missionaries out of Iran, and now they're in the, they're millions of Christians in Iran. Why? Because the people of God don't sit by and go quiet. They stay engaged. This is the message for the church as we draw by implication this from this text. When the church is under fire, we get busy, <laughs> more busy with the things of the Lord, making the gospel known and making disciples. That's, that's what we ought to be about. And again, we can't lose because to live is Christ and to die is gain. But it's a very real temptation that confronts the Lord's people, brothers and sisters overseas who are truly suffering, imprisonment and shunning by family and friends, and now even social uh, that social credit squeeze, and by that I mean you can't go here or you can't buy that because of what you believe or who you associate with. These things are coming to us, and, and the, it really causes us to have to focus. What will you cherish most? Will you cherish what is seen or will you cherish what is unseen? What did those disciples cherish? 
What did Paul and Barnabas cherish? Their lives? Or they cherished obedience to Christ? They cherished Christ, didn't they? Jesus said this in John 12, 25, and 26. He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. As pointed out last time we were in this text, uh, it is the necessity, the point that a true Christian is one who perseveres in the faith until the end. We can easily imagine these young disciples feeling as if they may not want to continue to follow Christ if this is what we are to encounter. But my friends, in the end, it will be worth it. And I want to read to you from 1 Peter. Uh, we know 1 Peter, 1 and 2 Peter. Uh, 1 Peter speaks about the trials that come from outside of the church, and 2 Peter speaks of the trials that come from within the church, false teachers. Listen to what Peter would say in 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9. He writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God <clears throat> through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. My friends, we do not lose. The Christian does not lose, even though he might lose his life, and even though he might endure hardship, he does not lose. In Christ, we have this tremendous hope. So they continue, Paul and Barnabas continue in the work of the gospel. They do not lick their wounds and succumb to self-pity. Suffering, suffering because of and for Christ is a privilege for the Christian. That's a whole new mindset, isn't it? Thinking about suffering. Paul writes in Philippians 1.29, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. It was granted to us. And then, of course, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. <clears throat> this is the men, Paul and Barnabas. Uh, Paul gets up. The next day, Paul and Barnabas travel on to Derby uh, to continue to preach the gospel and to make many disciples of the Lord Jesus. And so, as we continue to read, they, they are concerned that the saints in each place for disciples are saints, those who are set apart by the Lord. They're concerned that these saints persevere. They traveled back through each of the cities from which they had come and made disciples, and we're told in verse 22, strengthening the souls, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. 
Again, persecutions and tribulations and hardships are those things that we will not merely uh, will go through, but we must enter into the kingdom of God. Somehow, God, these things are necessary for us. We must go through them if we are to enter into the kingdom of God. Um, my friends, the trial, trials in the Christian life are part and parcel of what it means to follow Jesus Christ. And if someone says otherwise, they're selling something to you. And, and I bring this up, and I, I feel like there, there's been a real strong dose of um, suffering and persecution uh, coming from this pulpit for the past, oh, year. <laughs> and it has been the hardest thing uh, to wrap my mind around how, how, the Lord, how the Lord orchestrates these things and uses them and how he's actually growing us through the trials and tribulations that we undergo. And I don't want you to become discouraged, and I don't want you to say, there's something wrong here, because by every account, something very right is occurring, right? Something good is happening. It doesn't always feel that way. But we, we, we don't live by how our, our feelings dictate. We gird our loins with truth. <laughs> Remember that sermon a couple weeks ago? <laughs> we gird our loins with truth. The truth of the matter is, is that the Lord says we're to go through these things. We must go through them. I was thinking about this. Even a little child in the, in the womb is born through tribulation. He must go through tribulation. He must be born into this world. And you think about that. It's a, quite a trial, but then he enters into life. And you think about it. We're, we are forced. We must go through these things in order to be brought into the kingdom of God. It's a, it's a strange parallel there. So uh, trials are part and parcel of what it means to follow Jesus Christ. And so the, the, as we read here of Paul and Barnabas, they go back. And, and again, the question is, are they crazy? Why would they do this? And again, it's because they're not concerned about themselves, but they're concerned about the church. What a picture and image of Christ. What a picture and an image of what elders and deacons are to do and be. It's not about themselves. It's about Christ. It's about making Christ known. It's about caring for the flock. It's because they cared for the saints. They are now, the saints themselves, these Christians are now, now targets. Targets, uh, being followers of Jesus Christ, is to invite attack. It is to invite spiritual warfare. You didn't struggle against the flesh, did you, before you were a Christian? I never worried about sin before I was a Christian. I was like, I didn't even think about sin. I didn't even have that category, really, in my, my thinking. It's just like you just do it like you're an unreasoning animal. I want to eat that. I'm going to eat it. I'm going to take it. I'm gonna... You think, what, what was I doing? A little cretin. And yet the Lord, again, opens your eyes. He saves you. And, and all of a sudden, you care about things. You have a, a, a target on your back. And then we read now, finally, in verse 23, when they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Here we see, finally, their concern for the church to ensure that they are left in good hands. They are left in good hands. And we, we consider first their motive behind appointing elders in the church. We have already largely considered this. The apostles, remember, were those who were sent out. They're sent out. 
They did not stay in a place for too terribly long. They have traveled to these cities, they have preached, they have made disciples, and then they move on. Friends, it is not enough to hear the gospel once. This is why we encourage people to come weekly to worship. And I would encourage you to come Sunday evenings, and you already are, uh, but we would encourage people to come um, and partake of the means of grace as frequently as you can. Um, the saints don't uh, just hear the gospel and, and say a prayer and then they, they move on. And the apostles don't take this, this either. It would be similar to hearing I love you once on your wedding day and never hearing again that you are loved. The apostles are concerned for the longevity of the saints, of the Christians. <clears throat> They're concerned that the saints don't fall away, that they don't uh, turn away from the gospel message, that they um, endure under the fires of persecution. Their motive behind what we read in verse 23 is clear. It is to leave the church of the Lord Jesus in the good hands of, of men who will care for the souls of the people. The apostles are not going to be around forever. And, and the pastor is an ordinary office, meaning that there's been pastors ever since the time of the apostles, and the pastors are supposed to carry the doctrines of the apostles and apply them to the lives of the people. The local church needs faithful elders in it to care for the congregation. That is a must. That's God's design. That's why we ordained and installed elders this morning. They're there to nurture uh, the church in the grace of the Lord. This is what elders and pastors are supposed to do, to protect, to model Christ to them, to help them along to heaven. And this is why we read what we do in verse 23. Verse 22 demonstrates the apostles' concerns for the church, and verse 23 shows how they intend to implement this care for the individual congregations. The fact that they, they are motivated by care now that they appoint um, these elders in every church that they go to. And we're told when they had appointed elders for them in every church. An elder is a presbyteros, where we get the word Presbyterian. Uh, one commentator said, in most civilizations, authority has been vested in those who by reason of age or experience have been thought qualified to rule. Moses served alongside of 70 elders, according to Numbers 11.25, who served alongside Moses to share the government of the people. And here Paul and Barnabas appointed elders. We'll get into what it means to appoint in a moment. The elders are those who are generally speaking older in age, but not necessarily so, as we find a man like Timothy who was considered youthful. Don't let them look down on you and your youthfulness. And it is believed Timothy was somewhere in his 30s. They are, that is, the elders in the church, not necessarily old men or successful men, but they are experienced. Uh, they are older in the sense of maturity. They are godly men who love the Lord, his truth, and love his people. Uh, in, in Titus chapter 1, Paul would equate the elder with the overseer. They are one and the same. One describes his age, one describes his function. In 1 Timothy 3, I want to read this to us right now, because again, we see what an elder is supposed to be. First Timothy 3 tells us this. It is a trustworthy statement if any man aspires to the office of overseer. <clears throat> it is a fine work he desires to do. 
An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God, and not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred, incurred by the devil, and he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Here, the description is given of a man of godly character, who cares for the church and who protects her from harm. If you turn with me just a few chapters over to Acts 20, verses 18 through 35, we get a wonderful picture of, of what uh, Paul would instruct the elders. We read, And when he had come to him, he said to him, to them, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. Notice what he says there. He's suffering, and yet he says, I didn't shrink from doing my job. I'm teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, bound by the Spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course in the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus, to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that all of you, among whom I went about preaching the kingdom, will no longer see my face." Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. You hear what he says? Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, Savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and, give, and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. And everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So we read this and we see here, we get a snapshot of, of what the elders are supposed to be about. 
the kind of men they're supposed to be, um, the character, uh, the, the fact that in Titus he says that they must be able both to exhort and sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. These are men who are given to the word, they are given to the church, and they're given to care for the church. Why? Because there are wolves outside the church that will attack the church. We see this happening throughout um, the, the nations right now, and we also see false teachers rising up within the church to lead men astray and to destroy their souls. And so there's a good reason why Peter would speak of the chief shepherd, and we, we by implication, refer to elders as under-shepherds. They serve the Lord Jesus. Their concerns are not their own concerns. Their concerns are to be the concerns of Jesus Christ. What will keep this person safe until glory? It's a very important job, a very significant calling. And this is what the church needs as these men are on the field, caring, as it were, for the sheep in that location. And, and that should not be underestimated, and it should not be dismissed as though, well, you're just an elder at a little church in the Rocky Mountains. I'm serious. I'm, I've thought about this ad infinitum. What would you think if somebody came into your home and said, you're not running your home right. I don't think you're spending enough money on vegetables. I don't think you shouldn't, I don't think you should be having internet in your home. I don't think you're dealing with your children. You would say, buddy, go pound sand. You don't know what you're talking about. I'm the one who's on the field day in and day out. I know what I'm doing here and I know this congregation and I know what they need. You would not tolerate it in your own homes if somebody walked in like that. And I think we underestimate, and this is where I'm leery of, of groups like peacemakers and others. I'm not saying that they don't have a place, but they can. If we're not careful, they come in and they undermine the very position and authority that the Lord has installed in these men that he puts over his congregation. Christ himself is head of the church, and over the church he raises up men. We see that here uh, modeled for us, exemplified, instructed to us, in this passage of scripture, when they had appointed elders for them in every church, they clearly do it, friends, because they have concern, ongoing concern for the church, and the apostles were not going to stay there. Who can we leave these precious, precious sheep for whom Christ shed his blood? We will leave men who fear God, love his word, and love his, his truth and his people. That's an elder. One of the best compliments I ever heard given of an elder uh, was a lady in our church in Fort Wayne, and there was a, a man whose name was Willard Smith. He was a farmer. He had a job. Um, he'd done a number of things, but he, he, he took those little plastic white beads and they made corrugated pipes for irrigation fields. That was his job. And... Um, they asked him who owned the keys of the church one day in an exam, and he goes, uh, Phil? <laughs> and they go, no, 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 you're not thinking. Think of discipline. He goes, oh, 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 oh. And he answered this. He was a man who, who just didn't like to get up in front of people. Most unassuming man, just down to earth and kind. And one of the ladies in the church, Mary, said, she goes, you know, she says to me, I always feel safe when Willard's around. And I thought, that surely must be one of the highest compliments any man could ever, any elder could ever get 
from someone in the Congress. I feel safe when they're around because that's exactly, that's exactly how the congregation should feel about their elders. I feel safe when they're around. They're not going to take advantage of me. They're not going to brutalize me. They're going to care for me. They're going to look after me. They're going to lead me to the Lord. That's why they would leave elders. That's why those elders would be there to protect them. So how? We're given insight into this as well. We're told when they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. We're told again that they appointed elders. Here there is some debate as to what happened. What does it mean to appoint? Was it Paul and Barnabas who appointed the elders in every church? Was it done without input from the church? Was it a kind of top-down approach to appointing elders? One commentary suggests that because these were new churches, at least partly pagan in background, that Paul and Barnabas may have both selected the men they wanted to be elders and also appointed these elders. To appoint means to vote by stretching out the hand to elect to appoint, to create. In other words, says another commentator, the showing of hands was equivalent to choosing officials, in this case, to serve in the government of the local church. When we compare this statement that they had appointed elders with others, uh, other scriptures, remember the, the analogy of faith that scripture is its own best commentary, We'll just reference these briefly, but in 2 Corinthians 8, 19, we are told that Titus was appointed by the churches to travel with the apostles. And in Acts 1, 23 through 26, we are told about the drawing of lots to choose Matthias, but it was, it was the group that chose it. In Acts 6, 1 through 6, in verse 3, they were told, uh, select from among yourself seven men of good reputation. And remember, they say, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. You men choose them. Choose who, who you would put forward. And then in Acts 13, 1 through 3, the Holy Spirit said to the church, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. And furthermore, in the Didache, which is uh, known as the teaching of the 12 apostles, which presumably dates from the first century, uh, the Didache gives this rule to the churches. Appoint by a show of hands, therefore for yourselves bishops and deacons worthy of the Lord. It would appear that in the scriptures, what is occurring when we say appoint, it is the stretching out of hands. In all of these other verses, we see that there was input from the congregation. And if you think about it, Paul and Barnabas have gone on from these other congregations. They're now going back to these congregations. And what do we see? Likely what we have seen is that these men are distinguishing themselves. People are getting to know these believers. And now Paul and Barnabas come back through. And it is likely, highly likely, that the churches are saying, Paul, Barnabas, you really ought to, we ought to think about this guy and that guy. And we ought to, they, they distinguish themselves. They are following. They're godly men. They love the Lord. They love his church. They love his truth. So it is very likely that this appointment that, that Luke records here uh, was not apart from the congregation, but in conjunction with the local congregations, men who had been raised up by the Lord, and they have voted to install them, much like we did two weeks ago when we took a vote. These men distinguish themselves in some form or fashion. They are known for being men 
of conviction and of speaking. And furthermore, uh, they have depended upon the Lord. We are told that they did this having prayed with fasting. If you turn over to Acts 13, 1 through 3, we see this very thing going on. Now there were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene and Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the, Lord, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. The idea um, of fasting and prayer being essential, and certainly we err when we don't seek the direction or the guidance of the Lord. Here they prayed and fasted. They carried the matters of the church, of those who would lead them to the Lord in prayer, foregoing food in order to more earnestly seek the Lord in prayer, a practice in which we have been remiss, I'm afraid. They were selected and appointed by the apostles and the congregation, most likely. And the obvious implication, my friends, is this. Uh, The fact that they prayed and fasted, the fact that they had appointed elders, what does that mean for the congregation? Again, we alluded to it this morning in that brief charge I gave. Uh, But if you would turn with me to Hebrews 13, verse 17, again, listen to what the Lord says. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Now that sounds like a self-serving verse, but it's not a self-serving verse. The elders are given to care for the church. What should the congregation's response be to those elders? It should be, I'll listen to what you're saying. We recognize we we chose you. You came from our own number. We recognize your life, your character. And we recognize that you love the body of Christ. Very similar to a husband and wife. We know in Ephesians 5 that husbands should lay down their lives for their wives. They're supposed to die for them. And what do wives do? They obey their husbands. They submit to them. That's the Lord's instruction. What wife doesn't want to submit to a man who's willing to die for her? And what congregation doesn't follow the leadership when they're willing to lay their lives down for them? It's counterproductive. It's counterproductive to vote men into office and then say, I don't trust you and I don't want you. That's that's just ludicrous. And it's contrary to God's design. So the obvious implication here is is that the elders are put there to care for the congregation. You would be very wise to listen to the men that the Lord has raised up. Unless you can see that there is blatant sin somehow. We're not talking about whether you question their judgment. Of course, every wife questions her, why would he do that? Why would he put that board there? Why would he try to do that? they, They question these kinds of things all the time. But they still submit. We're talking about flat-out sin. We're not talking about you disagree with a decision that is neither right nor wrong. It's a matter of judgment. Trust the men that the Lord has raised up. Otherwise, you just have chaos. You have chaos, and churches don't function that way. 
They can't. Not well. So we select, they selected and appointed these men to care for the congregation. They are, by obvious implication, supposed to follow them. They have prayed and they've been put in place. And finally, then we read that they commended them to the Lord. They commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. They are to leave the churches that have been established. They have left them in good hands, um, men who would care for and nurture them. But then even that, my friends, is not fool, uh, foolproof, is it? Because men make mistakes. As Luther said, councils do err. They commend them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Now this is the greater, the greater hope we have. They leave them in the hands of, of godly men. But ultimately they leave them in the hands of the Lord. And this is our hope. They entrust the churches, elders, and congregations alike to the Lord who loved them and gave himself up for them, who has promised to never leave nor forsake them. To entrust or to commit to one's charge uh, to the Lord was to do so for protection and safety. Men may and do fail. That is true, friends. Men may and do fail. Uh, don't make the mistake of thinking that the elders and your pastor have arrived. When I, we've never maintained that. Um, but I would say, if you're not praying, if you're not praying for them, you will end up praying on them. And so, pray for your session and pray for your deacon, and make their job sweet and pleasant by not fighting when they have to make decisions, and it's not always readily apparent to you why they would make a decision that way. Um, but ultimately, our hope is not in men, for they do get tempted. Sometimes they grow lax. What assurance do we have that we will be okay as a congregation? Here's the assurance, friends, is that the Lord loves us and keeps us. And that ultimately is what the disciples, the apostles, entrust them to. They entrust them to the Lord. Yes, we're putting safeguards in place. Yes, we're doing these things. But our ultimate hope must be and always is in the Lord Jesus himself who loved us and gave his life for us. The Lord, my friends, cares for his church. The Lord cares for his church. Listen to this final verse from Jude 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. It is the Lord who cares for his congregation, his people. And so that's the way we need to proceed. We, we put the best things in place that we can. We do the best job we can. And then we trust the Lord <laughs> that he will, he will sustain us through it all. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, again for your word, and thank you for your great kindness to us. Bless us, we pray. And again, Father, as we started off before uh, the sermon, we, we pray that you would revive your church. We confess to you, Father, that we are an awful mess so often. We are dust. We are frail. But you are good and you are faithful. 
And we know, Lord, that the work that you have begun in us, you will complete. You have promised this. This is truth. And so we ask, Father, that you will help us to breathe easy, to rest in you, and and to labor on, to make disciples. We pray that you would open doors for the gospel this week for us in this room. And we pray, Father, that we will not be ashamed or embarrassed or timid about speaking the name of Jesus and calling people to faith and to repentance and to looking to Jesus Christ. Bless your people now, we ask. And I pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.